But I want to begin today with a, a verse, and I'm going to put that on the screen. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, and it's a verse that I've always found interesting. It says, Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God. Now the idea is that Jesus is God. He was fully God. But he did not regard, regard equality with God, that is God the Father, to be grasped but emptied himself, and pay attention to that, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he existed in the form of God, he is God, and yet he emptied himself, he became a man. And so the, the idea is, or the, the question that I have is, what did he empty himself of? Well, did he empty himself of being God? No, he's, as Christians we hold that he's fully God and fully man. So what did he empty himself of? Well, as you put two and two together in the Bible, you find that what Jesus emptied himself of was the power of God that he had by being God. And the idea is, is he became a man. Everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, he had to do as a man, not as God. Now, now that's important because if you're like me, I grew up in the church, and I used to love the stories, and they'd say, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000, and we, oh, it's such a great story, and they go, well, you know, big deal, he's, he's God. Or they'd say, well, you know, Jesus healed the sick, you go, that's really cool, you know, but, but big deal, he's God. Or he raised the dead, and you say, that's really awesome, but then on the other side, it's like, well, big deal, I mean, he, he's God. Until it hit me that everything that Jesus did, he had to do as a man, not as God. And so the power that he operated in didn't come from him being God, it was somebody else's power that he operated in as a man. So the question is, how did he get that power? What did he need to do in order to maintain that power if he had to do everything as a man? And for that reason, what I want you to do today is I want you to take your Bible and I want you to open up to the first clear page in your Bible where you can write something down. And there in your Bible, I want you to write down Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Now, if it's already written there, then you know you've been here for at least two and a half years. Mark 1, 35. Mark 1, 35. And then I want you to take your Bible and I want you to flip to the New Testament. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark 1, 35. Matthew, Mark, 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 Mark 1, 35. Now, when you get to Mark chapter 1, verse 35... Go ahead and look at me. Really? <laughs> We're a Bible church, people. <laughs> we don't just put three verses on the screen. <laughs> okay, I'm just playing. All right, Mark 135. Mark 135. Everybody there? Okay, we're going to notice something in the life of Jesus and his ministry. Mark 135, it says, early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And I'll just read verse 36. It says, Simon and his companions searched for him. And uh, verse 37 says, when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. So Mark 135, we notice that it's early in the morning, a great while before it's light, and Jesus feels as though he needs to get up, go outside, go to a solitary place, and, and spend some time praying there. That's the first thing that I want us to notice. Now, if you've been here long enough, you'll know that I, I look at this verse, and theologically I conclude that this does, in fact, prove that Jesus did drink coffee. And there's two clues here. Number one, early in the morning, a great while before it's light. Does that happen without coffee? 
No. And then he went to a secluded place and he's praying there. So again, that does not happen without coffee. Therefore, Jesus drank coffee. And so I want to tell you, you do not get this type of theology in commentaries. You can only get that here. So Mark one thirty five it says that. But here's what I want you to do. Next to that, that verse, I want you to write Luke 4.42. Luke 4.42. There in the margins. And then we're going to turn to the right. We're going to go to Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So it's just the next book over. And I want you to find Luke 4.42. Luke 4.42. Everybody there? Luke 4.42. Okay. So here's how it says it in Luke's gospel. Verse 42, it says, When day came, Jesus went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities, other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, as you put the Bible together, you find that this event in Luke 4.42 is the same event in Mark chapter 1. So it's the same morning, the same event. From Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus is praying, and we also know that everyone is looking for him. It's at this point in Jesus's ministry where he's very, very popular with the people. Being very popular with the people, there's pressure to stay and continue ministering in this one area. But it's in that time of prayer, although all the circumstances are saying, stay right here, everybody loves what you're doing, it's in that time of prayer that he discerns it's time to move on and continue doing what it is that God's called him to do. So there in verse 43, he says, but he said to him, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So we see that. So Jesus is is praying, it's early in the morning. Now next to verse 42, I want you to write 516, 516. And then we're going to turn one page over to chapter 5, verse 16. One page over, 516, and here's what it says. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. If you have the New American Standard, the NIV, the New King James Version, it has that word often, and I want you to underline that word often. Often. Often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Apparently, Jesus realizes that in order for him to accomplish what, what it is that he's been called to do, it's going to require that he often slips away to the wilderness to pray. So we see Jesus praying in the morning. We see him often slipping away to the wilderness to pray. Next to verse 16, I want you to write 612, 612 in your margin. 612 in your margin and then flip over one page. And in verse 12 of chapter 6, here's what it says. It says, it was at this time, very particular time, that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. The whole night in prayer to God. So here we see Jesus praying all night. He's prayed in the morning, often slips away to the wilderness to pray. Here he's praying all night. So the question is, what's so important that right now Jesus feels that he needs to spend an entire night in prayer to God? Well, verse 13 tells us. Verse 13, it says, And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, underline that, whom he also named as apostles. As you follow the chronology of Jesus' ministry, 
He's been living among the disciples. There's 120 disciples. There's 70 disciples, but he realizes now it's time to make a decision and bring it, bound, bring it to the 12 that he's going to invest in. This one decision is going to be a life-altering, ministry-altering decision that is going to affect literally generations to come. So although Jesus has been praying about these guys, and although he knows these guys, it's, it's, it's now decision time. So before he makes this life-altering, ministry-altering decision that's going to affect generations to come, he decides, I need to take one more time, one more night, and spend the entire night in prayer to make sure I, I, I make the right decision. You and I are here today because he made the decision that he made and was based upon not just praying, but at this time spending a whole night in prayer to God. Which leads us to the question, do you know anyone who made a life-altering decision that would affect generations to come, who after the fact wishes that they would have spent just a little bit more time in prayer? And so here Jesus models for us that before big decisions there needs to be Big prayer, big prayer. So we see that in his life. Well, next to that, I want you to write 918, 918. And we flip over just a couple pages to chapter 9. Come to verse 18. A couple of things we want to highlight in this verse, and it says, And it happened, this is 9.18, and it happened while he was praying alone, you want to underline that, that the disciples were with him, but he's praying alone, he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? One of the things that we find about in this time of prayer, this is not just before a, a, a major decision, but this is just after something. So what's just happened that Jesus feels that he needs to spend some time with his heavenly father praying? Well, let's just go up one verse to verse 17. And in verse 17, it says, they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. This event is the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, it's a great win. And when you you read the story, it says there were 5,000 men. They only counted the men. And so most people agree that it was about 15,000 people in total when you consider the women and the children. So here Jesus has just had this this great win in ministry. But before celebrating, he decides to spend some time with his heavenly father. And I believe the reason is because sometimes it's after our greatest wins that people do the dumbest things. Do you agree with that? You ever seen somebody who gets a zillion dollars sports contract and then they go out and they do something really stupid? And so Jesus, knowing that, decides before celebration, I'm going to check in and spend some time with my heavenly father. Well, I also wanted to highlight something in that verse. We notice it says, and it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Jesus is praying alone, but the disciples are with him. They're not praying, but what Jesus is doing here is he's modeling prayer for them. Many of you know my story that when I was 13 years old, I had to move out of my my family of origin 
and I, I moved in with another family that through the years has become uh, very much my family. And one of the things that I noticed the first day that I moved in, the way that the house was structured, I stayed out in the Florida room and I had to walk through the dining room over to round to the bathroom. And Doug, who's the father in the family, and Marie, the mom in the family, Doug, that first morning that I got up, I noticed something and I saw something that I'd never seen before. And what I saw was the Doug, who was the, the father of the family, he was sitting at the dining room table before I got up, and he had a Bible open, a pen in his hand, he had a notepad and a large cup of coffee. And I thought, wow, some, I must have done something really bad because I never saw anybody open a Bible outside of church. And uh, so here's this man, and he's there, and he's praying, spending time with God. And uh, every day when I would get up, I would walk around the, the, the dining room to the bathroom, and there would be Doug, and every day the, the Bible would be open, large cup of coffee, pen in hand, and a notepad, and he would be writing down some things. And I, I, I remember thinking, even to this day, there was a peace in that home that I had never experienced before, and I realized very quickly that whatever these people had, I wanted And that had a profound effect on me, looking at this man every morning, getting up, Bible open, pen in hand, notepad, large cup of coffee. Well, I I didn't think a whole lot about it, but 25 years later, Cheryl and I have moved here. We've started the church, and and, uh, Daniel was the the first child born here. And and, um, I remember this one morning that, that I had to get up and go to some early meeting. Cheryl told me this story later. Daniel got up that day, he was two years old, and he walks into the living room, and I, it never dawned on me that Daniel was so used to me sitting there with the Bible, the notepad, the pen, and a large cup of coffee. And this one day I wasn't there, and so he, he didn't know what to do with that, so in his best two-year-old way, he ran back to his room, he got a book, and he came up and he said, mommy, mommy, Daddy, daddy, as he's holding the book. And the idea is that daddy's not there with the book. Something must be wrong. And it hit me that it had been linked up in his mind that on the day that dad does not spend time there with the book alone, he didn't know what I was doing, that something must be wrong. And in my world growing up, if I were to see somebody there with the book open, I had linked up in my mind that something must be wrong. They got the book open because we never see somebody with the book open. And then it hit me that as a parent, I get to link up one of two things in my children's mind. One, I will link up that on the day that they don't see dad there with the book, it might mean something's wrong. Or on the day that they do see dad there with the book, it must mean that something is wrong. And we get to choose as parents what we link up in our children's mind. So I would encourage you parents, choose wisely, think through, and uh, let your children link up that they're so used to seeing mom, dad there with the book that on the day that they don't see that, they say that something must be wrong. Does that make sense? Well, uh, so there's Jesus modeling prayer. Well, next to that verse 18, I want you to write verse 28, verse 28. And we'll just go a little bit further down in the chapter, and it says, some, day, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. 
He went up to the mountain to pray. So that's what he's doing. It says, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white. And my Bible says like uh, gleaming. Uh, The word literally there is like lightning, like lightning. I've always been bothered by that because that never happens to me. I'd be happy with a, a little soft glowing something, but, but here's Jesus and, and uh, that's what's taking place, like lightning. But I want you to just skip down real quick down to verse 32, and it says, now Peter and his companions have been overcome with sleep. At this point in their lives, although they love the Lord, they're disciples, but they've never come to that place where they pray themselves, but they keep watching Jesus, they keep watching Jesus. Well, next to verse 28 there, I want you to write 11-1, 11-1. So we'll go a few pages over to chapter 11, verse 1. And I'll read and we'll highlight just a couple of things in this verse. It says, and it happened while Jesus, and very, very specific, Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. So here here Jesus is still modeling prayer for his disciples. And they've been watching. So on this day, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now the part that's always hit me in this is that we would all agree that Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived. And they'd seen him preach. But nowhere is it recorded in our Bibles that the disciples ever turn to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to preach like you preach. They never asked that. He was the greatest miracle worker that the world had ever seen. But it's not in our Bibles anywhere that they turn to him and say, Lord, teach us to do miracles. But they saw him pray. And something happened in their minds and they linked up that whatever was going on in his life and ministry was directly related to his prayer life. His prayer was the source of his power. So they saw that and they said, Lord, teach us to do that. Teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples to pray. Well, next to chapter 11, verse 1, I want you to write 18.1. 18.1. And then we'll flip over a few pages to chapter 18. chapter 18. I'm going to read the first eight verses, but we'll underline as we travel through. It says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. This is going to be a parable about prayer. They ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying in a certain place there was a judge, you want to underline judge, who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my, and in my Bible it says opponent. How many of your Bibles say adversary? Yeah, adversary is actually a better way of translating that, that, that word because uh, you know how the Bible says your adversary, the devil, prowls around? And many times Satan is referred to as the adversary, and it's the same word in the original language that is often translated as adversary, which always means Satan. And so here, some of your Bibles get it and you can make the, the connection easier. It's really going to be talking about Satan, the adversary. Give me legal protection from my opponent or adversary. Verse 4, for a while he had been unwilling, but after he said to himself, wait, did I miss something? Okay, for verse 4, for a while, 
For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. I love that. If you have kids, you know what that is about. It will wear you down. In our family, they, they ask the same question, they just rephrase it differently. And finally, you come to the place and you say, listen, I know what you're asking, you ask it one more time, I'm going to say no again. But when I say no, it's going to bring a lot of pain into your life. And I can do that. So what they do is they go get one of their brothers and sisters to start asking. So conniving little things they are. So anyways, so if you're a parent, you know about being worn out. Any parents ever been worn out by their kids? Yeah, They, they get what they want because they wear you out? Yeah. It goes against all the child books, but, but we've all done that at some point. Verse 6, and says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect, and that's you and I, who cry to him day and night, and, he will, delay, and, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. Now, underline this, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So here, when I, I first read this, and I would read this growing up, and I've even heard people teach on, on, on this, but they'll say, you know, you and I are like that widow, and uh, we don't have a lot of rights, we don't have anything, but, but God, God is there, and he can answer our prayer, but the, the way that we get God to answer our prayer is we've got to be persistent in the sense that we wear him out, and finally he says, I'm going to answer your request because you've just so worn me out. And I, and, and I used to read it that way, and I've actually heard some people share that, that, that that's, that's how it is. And so sometimes we read this, we go, God, I'm just going to wear you out until you answer my prayer. Um, but what we're going to find is this is really a study in opposites. First of all, we have in our story, we have this unnamed villain. And he's found in verse 3, he says, there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. I like your Bibles that say adversary a little bit better. Now here what we find is whoever this adversary is, this adversary is the single greatest problem in this woman's life. And so she needs some help dealing with this adversary. And if somebody deals with this adversary, her life is going to be dramatically different. So then we also, have, we also have in our story this widow. We tend to read the Bible through our very Western eyes, but this is the Middle East 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, a widow in the Middle East had no legal rights. So if, if uh, you became a widow, you would not inherit the property that had been part of your family. That would always go to a male relative. So at that point, your hope would be that a male relative would take you as part of his family because you, you had no legal rights, you, you couldn't own property, you couldn't go get a job, there was nothing, you couldn't go to court. So the, the challenge with that, and when, when we think about that is that, or not the challenge, but the idea is that you and I are not like a widow who has no legal rights. You and I are children of God, and he is infinitely concerned about our situation. He, he loves us, he wants to do great things, and, and uh, so that's the idea. So we're the opposite of this, of this widow. And uh, then you also have this judge, and it says, who did not fear God and did not respect man. And so we all, we all put, you know, that's, that's God, that's God the Father. Well, God is not like this judge who doesn't care about our situation. 
For instance, we're all familiar with the verse John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And uh, you know, when you, you read that, you, you read the story, he didn't wait till we were crying out to meet our greatest need. As a matter of fact, he met our greatest need when we weren't even thinking about him. So it's not that we have to wear him out. He's very concerned about us. So the point is, if this widow who has no rights before this judge who doesn't care, if she can get help, how much more can you and I as children of God get help from our heavenly Father who loves us infinitely? And if you're a parent, you know that that you love your children and you'll do anything for them. So that's the idea. But the, the verse, the, the passage begins in uh, verse 1. It says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The, the idea here is this is not a story about getting saved. This is a story about prayer. And he's teaching that we should pray at all times. So it begins there, but it ends in verse 8. And in verse 8, the question that Jesus has he says, I tell you that they w- he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, and this is what Jesus is pondering. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the question that Jesus has as he looks through history 2,000 years in the future, in that last generation, when Jesus shows up again, it says, will he find faith on the earth? Not faith to believe that Jesus is our Savior. It's not a parable about salvation. It's a parable about prayer. So one of the questions that he has when he comes back is will his people have enough faith to be praying people beyond maybe dinner and and, uh, breakfast and maybe a, a little bedtime prayer? Will they be people of prayer? Will they have the faith even to be praying? When we first began the church all those years ago, I... I was uh, impressed by a study that was done or cited by Christianity Today, which held that the average pastor in America prayed on the average about three minutes a day, and which caused me to conclude if the average pastor only prays about three minutes a day, what about the average parishioner, the average person who comes to church? What, what is their prayer like? What is their prayer life like? And it occurred to me uh, that that the reason... There's a reason that we as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, don't pray. And the way that I've always explained it, and you've certainly heard this from me before, if you were to come to me after the service today and you were to say, you know, Dan, I'm, my back is against the wall. If I don't come up with $10,000 tomorrow morning, I'm, they're going to take my house, they're going to take my car, I'm going to lose everything. I have to come up with $10,000 by tomorrow morning or it's all done. And you were to share that with me. And if I were to say to you, you know what, here at Calvary, we, we have a fund for that. We can sometimes step in and help. I don't have the checkbook now. But if you meet me at IHOP tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., I'll be there. I'll get the church checkbook. And uh, we'll take care of that little situation. Now, I'm not really going to. This is just a story. So don't ask, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, so, but to the extent, so, so the, tomorrow morning, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and, and you wake up and you remember what, what I've said, to the extent that you believe that I could meet that need or that I would meet that need would be to the extent that you would make every effort possible to be there. 
But if in your heart of hearts, you might say, you know, I, I know Dan's a nice guy, but the truth is he can't really do that. And even if he could, he really wouldn't do that for me. Then you'd probably just roll over and go back to sleep. See, the reason that we as Christians do not have a vibrant prayer life, although from cover to cover in our Bibles, uh, in our Bible talks about the power of prayer. The reason is somewhere along the line, we have come to the place where in our heart of hearts, we believe that he could not or he would not for me. And for many of us, we look around the room and go, I can see why God would answer that person's prayer. I can see why God would answer that person's prayer, but he would never do that for me. And because we've linked that up so deeply in our heart, we don't even pray, even as Bible-believing Christians. We are in a study where we are talking about spiritual warfare, and we began talking about how Satan is a deceiver. His greatest, his greatest um, trick, his greatest scheme, as we called it, is to deceive believers. Now, if everything happens through prayer and the power is there and Satan knows that God really moves through prayer, what do you think the greatest deceit he would try to bring in the life of the believer? The greatest deceit that he could bring in the life of the believer is, don't pray, it's really not going to change anything. And and many people have believed that deceit, which is why, even as Christians, we do not pray. So what we want to do today is just recognize that as we go forward, this is not you know, new people or anything like that, but the idea is recognize so we can go forward recognizing a scheme that's been brought against us which is making us powerless. Make sense? Say it like you mean it at least, come on. <laughs> All right, well next to chapter 18 verse 1, I want you to put 2240, 2240, 2240. We'll go to chapter 22 and then verse 40. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. And uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 39, but verse 40 we're going to focus in on. He came out and proceeded. Now, however your Bible says it, my Bible says, as was his custom, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What, what I, I wanted to highlight very quickly in verse 39 is we know that th- this is the night that Jesus is betrayed. Judas is going to be leading the soldiers to arrest Jesus, and it says, as was his custom. Do you know why Judas knew where Jesus would be at that time, at that night? Because it was his custom. He knew Jesus would be there praying at that time. So there was no ambiguity on his part. This is where we're going to find Jesus. Uh, I, I think the message is in that. Is you might want to move your prayer place around a little bit. <laughs> it's funnier in the first service. Verse, verse 40 it says, But when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus understood what was going to take place just around the corner in just a few minutes or maybe just another half hour or so. And he realizes that it's going to be the time of the disciples' greatest temptation. They're going to be tempted to deny him. They're going to be tempted to run from him and, uh, and to, to just completely walk away. It's going to be a great temptation. 
Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Not, not that the, the idea is that, that not that you're going to fall to the temptation or be overwhelmed with this temptation, but the idea is you don't go into that temptation. It, you, you just, it's not even a temptation because they've been prayed up at that point. So with that, very, very, very uh, quickly, just skip down to verse 46. You don't have to write it, but verse 46, it says, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as you read the story, they slept, didn't pray. They were overcome with that temptation. Apparently, prayer is part of the antidote to overcoming that temptation. Now, with that uh, this is the beginning of everything we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks as we continue this, this uh, teaching. We come to this part on prayer. So here's what I want to say. As, uh, again, as we wrap this up, everything that Jesus did, he had to do as a man. So he couldn't do it in the power that he had as being God because he emptied himself of that. So he realized that he had to pray to accomplish what it is that God called him to do. If Jesus had to pray to accomplish what it is that God called him to do. How much more? So what do we do? Well, we're going to take a couple of weeks as we move forward to talk about some of the mechanics of prayer. What do you pray for? How do you pray? But don't wait until we go through the mechanics. The truth is you just want to start. Start by, first of all, making it a priority. Set a time that you pray. Write a list of things that you're going to be praying for. We'll go over this in the coming weeks. And don't worry that you don't get it all right. You know, for my, my children in my home, when they're two years old, they're one years old, uh, they, can't, they can't say things in the right way. They, they don't always articulate. But as the dad, I'm infinitely concerned about them. I know what they're saying, even though they don't get it right. So it's not that they say it in the right way that causes me to move on their behalf. What causes me to move on their behalf is my love and their need. And that causes me to move. So before we even get into the mechanics, purpose in your heart not to believe the lie that your prayers don't matter, and then purpose to make it a priority, write down a list, and we'll begin talking about the mechanics as we go forward. With that, we're out of time. I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, I pray that as we talk about spiritual warfare, that we would not be people who believe the lie that our prayers really don't matter in our heart of hearts. And so we pray, God, that, that as we see that scheme that Satan brings, as we see that scheme and realize it for what it is, that we make the conscious decision to believe you over those feelings that we have. And fathers, we purpose to make our time with you a priority. Lord, we know you meet us where we are. You know what our needs are even before we ask, but you invite us into this relationship. So we commit to doing that. Thank you, God, for sparing us of this hurricane. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.